When I stepped into this healing series, one topic that I really wanted to press into is mental health. And the reason is, is because there's a huge stigma around mental health in general, but particularly within the church. Historically, the church has had a really hard time knowing how to navigate challenges around mental health. There are a lot of stigmas, and there are a lot of beliefs about what a believer should or shouldn't experience if they have faith. The reality is, is that the world is filled with authentic believers who are also wrestling with mental health challenges. In fact, there are times where you and I are wrestling with mental health challenges, but we'll deny it because of the stigmas. And if we as the church can't get to a place where we rightly understand that and rightly understand who God is in the midst of that, we could actually perpetuate more harm than we realize. So that's why I'm excited to have Peyton on this episode, because Peyton is very open and honest about her own journey around mental health, but also how she believes we can walk alongside each other in their journeys. You're listening to episode 70 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are God and you are good. And I thank you for this opportunity for Peyton and I just to get together and just talk about you, about her story that you've given her, about what you are up to. And we don't know what it is you ultimately want to bring out of this time, but I really do believe that there is something that you have been unpacking over the last several episodes and in the coming episodes. I believe there's something you want us to know, to press into, to trust you through. And so to that end, we just give you this time. We thank you for our ability to share, but we want to invite you to guide our words. We just want you to be glorified by everything that's said. And we thank you for just the privilege of being able to be in this space. Let's pray in his holy name. Amen. Amen. So Peyton, you and I don't know each other. We are another pod match connection. Podmatch has been rocking it with connections the last month. But more than that, I mean, Podmatch gets some credit. But more than that, I really do believe that God has been bringing about these connections. And with you, one thing I'm excited about is you just put out a book that is sharing some of your story, particularly in the realm of mental health. That is a realm that the church doesn't like to touch. And that when it comes to healing, that is a realm that the church really does not know how to respond or engage. Ever since we've been communicating, I've had a sense that this was going to be an important conversation because it's a topic that impacts more people than we want to acknowledge. And so before we, we jump into that, let's say you wrote the book of your life, who you are and everything, and they started studying it in schools, but then the students didn't want to read the whole book. So they got the Cliff Notes version of the book, the very short little quick hit thing. What is the Cliff Notes version of you? Oh, see, I was an English major in college and I took a Shakespeare's level 4,000 course and I hated it. So I secretly spark noted my way through the entire course. So spark notes, I feel you. I love you. And <laughs> so I think the spark notes version of my book is honestly the tagline. I thought about the tagline of my book 20 times more than I did the title. The title came quick and easy. The tagline took a little more time, a little more prayer. But I, I was just so affirmed when I knew the tagline. Like I felt like God said, hey, this is it. Like this is this is the chunk of the book that people have got to get. 
And so the book is called Not So By Myself, but the title is A Safe Space Where God Doesn't Fix the Loneliness, but Sits With You Instead. Mm-hmm. And so the concept here is despite mental health struggles, despite loneliness, for me, there was a lot of church trauma I grew up in. Despite all that, the beauty of God is discovering him in the process of the season rather than just waiting on him to snap his fingers. There's truly beauty from ash, but you have to walk through the fire for ash to even exist. Yeah, that's really good. And I, yeah, I do love that tagline. And I remember when I saw it, just the idea of God sitting with us instead of our desire for him to fix everything and make everything perfect. It's, it's that presence that really is where full life is. And so, yeah, I love, I love that. Let's just jump in. I mean, you have so many stories to tell. When you think of our interactions and this conversation itself, what is it that comes into your mind and heart that you want to share about just your story? So I grew up as a Christian school kid. I I didn't want to do Christian college because I was so tired of mandatory chapels and mandatory scripture verses, but I ended up getting my BA and my master's from Christian university. So I am your poster child for Christian school, lived in the church. Every member of my family was engrossed in the church and church for me quickly became performance. It quickly became this idea that God is pleased when I check the box. So I'm, I'm doing all the right things. I am the good Christian school girl. I'm making all the good grades. I'm smiling on cue. I'm following all the Jesus rules, but they never become anything more than rules for me. I I grew up in a church culture that was very much legalistic. I was told my whole life what not to do, but I was never told what to do as a follower of Christ. So for me, God was always someone I kept in an arm's distance because I saw him as a God that just required a lot of checked boxes. And it, as hard as I tried to be a perfectionist, I knew I wasn't perfect. And so God was not, just to be honest, God was not a loving God for me until about 10 years into my relationship with him. And I don't think I realized how loving he was until I reached a point in my life when I wasn't checking enough boxes. I'd been so good at being good that the second I wasn't, I had to not only figure out who I was, but I had to finally say, okay, God, are are you a God of love or not? Because I'm not performing well. So I need to see who you are despite my shortcomings. You You mentioned there's church trauma and you mentioned that there's this legalistic approach that the goal of being a Christian is to be a perfect Christian. How did that not just impact you on a what you did level, but on an internal level and in ways that you recognize in ways that you didn't? I I didn't recognize it at the time, but I I always knew I was a worrier. And so then you, you put worrying up against the fact that you're pretty much told perfection is the standard for heaven. So that's just something else to worry about on a vast, deep level. So growing up as a young adult, 11, 12, a teenager into 19, 20, 21, I'm internalizing this idea that I'm just never going to match up. And it's just, it's not going to happen. And at 25, after a really hard season of loneliness, when my husband and I got married just a few months later, he ended up being a pilot. Mm -hmm. He ended up in an airport states and states away. I was by myself. I was wrangling two of the worst dogs on the planet whom I love just a lot of hard stuff was going on. And I ended up at a therapist's office when I was 25 and that was the last place I wanted to be. But my therapist looked at me on day one when, you know, that awkward couch talk session where you just have to spill your guts. She said, you do know there's something called religious trauma 
She said, you without a doubt do have clinical obsessive compulsive disorder. And when you have OCD, and then when you have trauma of any sort, particularly as a young child, the two can merge and create a monster. So, so with my OCD, more specifically, I do have contamination OCD. I am a germaphobe, but I also have what's called religious OCD. And so I guess that's what's heartbreaking is, is I can look back now. And as a child, I see where honestly legalism destroyed my mental health and my spiritual health. And it took, it took decades to, to unravel that. And to this day, I'm still processing a healthy way to see church and, and the church community. Yeah. Well, and especially because it's not just a general secular environment where there could be legalism and pushing things like the reason that church can have such an impact is because it's hitting at the core of your being, your soul, your identity, why you were created, why you exist. Like it's hitting at these core things that if it's one thing, if you have a rough work environment and professionally it impacts you, it's another thing if your very existence is now thrown into turmoil. And so that's heavy. And I've never really heard the idea of, of OCD and religious trauma being combined, but it makes total sense. Before we move forward, you know, I hear OCD thrown out a lot. And a lot of people may talk about it without actually knowing what they are talking about. So when you talk about clinical OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, what's the, the spark notes <laughs> version yeah. of yeah. what that is, just so that as we move forward in conversation, listeners aren't bringing their own assumptions. Yeah. So, so I start out when I tell people what OCD is, I tell them what it's not because it is stereotyped. And unfortunately, the stigma is wrong 99% of the time. So there is the you have to color coordinate your closet. You have to wash your hands a lot. Those are called symmetry OCD and contamination OCD. But most of that only affects 2% of OCD diagnosed people. So like that, that's the stereotype of just having to have everything clean all the time and in order. It's not really it for most people. It's what's called intrusive thought OCD. That That's the, the heavy hitting one. That's what I have. And what it is chemically, like to break down the science of it, is where my frontal cortex the very front of your brain that processes impulses, feelings, like your ability to literally rationalize things and your ventral striatum, which is in the back of your brain. Those two things are supposed to fire correctly and say, okay, frontal cortex, here's what's happened. Ventral striatum, hey, here's how we handle it. This is where your rational sense to respond to things happens. And with OCD, they don't know a ton about it, but what they do know is there's a misfire between the front and the back of your brain. So your ability, if you have like an irrational thought, like if you ever get really mad at someone in traffic and you're like, I could just run them off the road. Like if I could just push them off the road, I, I could get home on time. Everyone has that thought, you shake it off, but someone with intrusive thought OCD, your impulse now from your frontal cortex tells the back of your brain, hey, you might've actually ran them off the road and now you're a killer. And what's worse is if you're a killer and you just drive off and now you're an intentional killer. So you probably should turn your car around to go make sure you didn't run. I've actually been in a car wreck, turning my car around, trying to make sure I didn't hurt somebody. So it's, it's all these thoughts that you don't want and the healthy part of your brain that communicates, hey, that was just irrational, shake it off, doesn't exist. So you mix that with religion that's unhealthy even when you know the scripture like I did as a Christian school kid, like the back of your hand, the irrational concept that God requires perfection, I couldn't shake it. So anytime I messed up, it was, I had to drop the ball after run and hide in the bathroom and pray. Like it was just an impulse that I couldn't shake. And like you said, it, it struck my identity. It challenged my core in a way that took a lot of time to work through. 
Yeah. In addition to the religious piece being not just things you shouldn't do, there's also the pressure of figuring out what God wants you to do. And at any given moment, you can, I imagine how this can play into it is you can have these thoughts like, what if God wants me to do this? What if I have to do this thing that I would never do otherwise, but what if it's what God wants me to do? And so I imagine that pressure to know God's will can play into this in some really frightening ways. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Because I struggled with this for years and it's, it's, there's different pieces of OCD that I've worked through so well. And there's other pieces that I still carry with me. But one thing I was able to work through is I truly believed, again, I grew up in a very legalistic church. There was a dress code for women. Women couldn't lead in any way. Women were told to be quiet. I overthought how I approached God. I, I overthought if I said something the right way, could I come to him angry with my prayers? Did everything go perfectly in this prayer? Like it was an obsession and I was never, it was just, I was never enough in my own head. And I was always afraid I would have to repeat a prayer or repeat the way I read the Bible to try and get it right. And for the longest time, Christianity was exhausting. It's what I did because I was terrified of God and there was nothing more to it. And I really appreciate you fleshing out the definition because you're right. There are assumptions, there are stigmas. I mean, I think probably 90% of people over the age of 30, when they think of OCD, they think of the show Monk, right? And that's, that's OCD. <laughs> exactly, you know, you've described something that is much deeper. And the reason I appreciate you sharing what's happening on a biological level is because our tendency as people, and unfortunately, as Christians, is to give the quick hit answer of like, well, just don't think those thoughts or just be positive or just <laughs> smile. And what you're talking about is not that you decided to have this thought and then you spent time with it. It's that the thought barged in and you didn't even know what was really happening in order to be able to make a game plan. It's not until like the tail end, it sounds like, where you can really start to piece together. Okay, all right, now I'm starting to figure this out. So there's no solution in the moment. And so I think that's important for people to know because then false approaches to healing aren't offered. <laughs> So to that end, what do you do if you suddenly find out that you've had all of this trauma that has impacted you on a deeper level than you realize, and then you find out that there's a clinical obsessive compulsive disorder, meaning that there are thoughts that you can't control or see coming, where do you go from there? Tell me, how did you move from that point? The, the pivotal point for me, I guess, I think God works in really neat ways and you don't always see it until you're on the other side of it. But for me, I was so rigid with my prayer life. It felt so stoic, so choppy. The pivotal point for me was when my husband was gone, I'd just been diagnosed with OCD. We still didn't have, med I'm, I'm a big medicine proponent. I think it's a modern day miracle. We didn't have medicine worked out just yet. So I'm still in, in the fog of everything. I'm having to face the fact that the good Christian school girl who was the valedictorian of her high school class, who was called Hanners, that was my maiden name, Hanners the Virgin in college, because I was the good girl, like all of these things, they just weren't working. Like, so I was in a really distraught place is the best way to say it. I, I couldn't handle anything anymore. And I remember one night I was just pacing the hallway in our home because there was nothing more I could do. My thoughts wouldn't slow down. I couldn't calm down. And I felt angry because I was having an identity crisis and I'd had one the whole time and knew it, but now it was in front of me. It was very tangible and I had to do something with it. 
And I, I had the audacity to just, I was stomping up and down the hall and I shook my fist and God's face, the whole dramatic gamut. And I didn't even know what was happening, but I yelled at him. I said, what in the H-E-L-L are you doing, man? I kid you not. That was my prayer to the God of everything was I'm throwing best words and prayers. I'm going, what are you doing? I said, I see what you're doing. And I said, I want you to know I don't like it. And I don't understand. And I'm just mad at you. And I don't know what else to tell you, except I'm not going anywhere because you're all I know. And I'm going to sit here and just hope you're as good as other people tell me you are. And that prayer right there, it was just, it was a 180. Like it was, I wouldn't like to say it was a Paul moment. Like there were no scales on my eyes, got knocked off the horse. But spiritually, I felt a complete 180 because for the first time in my life, I showed up to pray because I cared and not to perform. Like I actually was challenging who he was rather than just assuming I knew who he was and staying away from him. So for me, it, it didn't fix anything. You know, I think. I've heard people say, you know, if if you're a good enough Christian or having a faith, mental health is not something you would battle. Like, no, 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 no. If I miss my Zoloft for one day, my husband has to say, hey, babe, I love you. But did you take your pill this morning? Like Mm -hmm. the miracle was that my soul saw a side of God that I didn't even think existed. That was the miracle. And so at that point, I could now face the fact that perfection wasn't going to happen. Yeah. You know, for some reason, it brought to my mind the story of the prodigal son, but specifically the prodigal son saw his father in one way before he must have had this negative sense of his father or a very just generic. That's his role to bring life to me and to give me money. And now he has served his purpose. Right. But then he gets to this point where his 180 happened when he recognized, if anything, he knows that his father will give him a job. His father will give him food. And it's I love that image that you've given us of you had sought God your whole life, at least in the way that you understood it. You had sought God all the way up to the point where something snapped. You're like, forget it. I'm opening up the curse word dictionary and roll. Like, (laughs) yeah, you know, you were seeking God up to that point. But at that 180 moment, you suddenly realized that you were seeking a version of God or a God. And suddenly, you found yourself seeking the one true God, like the actual God. And I love the fact that there wasn't an immediate transformative change because that healing wasn't the thing that needed to change. It was that perspective. And it's so sad that people miss that, that for them, the story is an incomplete story because you didn't have all of the compulsive thoughts disappear in that moment. They, They missed the real miracle that happened because you're right. Like, the trauma that you experienced could have never gone away, at least how it impacted you. You could have never broken away from that. And so for it to happen in a moment that really like, there's no promise that that should have yielded anything, shaking your (laughs) face and yelling, that is a miracle, but so often people miss it. And so there's a question that popped in my mind and I don't know if you have an answer to it, but I imagine you've thought about it. Why is it? So many people who profess to be Christ followers believe that you have to be totally healthy in order for your faith to be clearly authentic. I think it's because we've watered down the concept of love. I think love in its rawest form is incredibly messy. I think that's what makes love love. You know, with my husband and I, if I was just this flawless wife, what would love be? 
Like love would not be an effort. It wouldn't be something you show up to fulfill. And so I think what's happened in the Christian culture is this concept of loving God. It's just lost the effort. We believe that love is something to perform for. Again, I think it goes back to performance. We just think you're supposed to have it all together. And that's how God loves you. When in all reality, love is a result of a lot of people's failures. Like I, in my experience, at least I know someone loves me when I drop the ball big and they're still standing there. I don't see love until I see how I've messed up. Mm. And, and I think that's what's happened. And, and for me, that 180 shift began this journey where, you know, you're told to love God your whole life. Like that was a box to check. That was the number one. Like, yes, I love God. Yes, I love God. I'm supposed to love God. But at some point we have to be so honest with what love really is that we can like God too. You know, so often you're like, yes, I love them because God tells me to, but there's no way I'm ever going to coffee with them. Like, I don't want to sit down with them. I don't want to have that conversation. And I think Christian culture has completely adopted that concept of watering down love so much that you wouldn't like someone enough to show up and have the messy conversations. Yeah. And I love that you bring, I love that you bring love into it. I love that you bring love into it. Because, oh gosh, yeah, that it really is. Like that's on the top 10 list of Christianese things. <laughs> right. And it's all in scripture. So clearly it's important. And it says God is love. And yet how profoundly do we misunderstand it? And how profoundly do we miss the mark? And, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking that another component of, of the type of love that God demonstrates and that he's inviting us into is that unconditional element. Now we'll say that too. We'll say unconditional love, but we won't actually think about what that means. And I think the best way for us to think about it is to flip it and be honest with the fact that we put conditions on our love. I will love you insofar as you don't hurt me. I will love you insofar as you dot, 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 right? And sometimes we won't put those preconditions on there, but when something happens, we learn what subconditions we've had in place. And the beautiful thing is that God does love us unconditionally because we have done so much to not deserve his love. Again, the prodigal son could have been just written off out of the story of that family's life because he took the money and ran. Instead, we find a father that it did not matter what his son did. That was his son. So the moment he comes back down the road, he is received back. That's, that was the level of love that it did not matter. It did not matter. It did not matter. And God looks at us the same way. No matter how many times you and I have done things that were unloving to God, that we have chosen <laughs> other gods, like we have obeyed other gods, whether it was our own protection or wealth or power, whatever our other gods are, even when we've done that, God has still loved us. And then we will say, and I love you, God, but the moment he doesn't give us what we want, the moment something hard happens, we recognize, no, we don't recognize. That's a problem. We don't recognize in those moments that that's revealing the conditions we had, that wow. I will love God insofar as my life is comfortable, my health is good, I have what I need, and my future is secure. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's why the book of Job fascinates people so much is because I'll be honest, Job almost seems like an impossible standard. It's he sees something in God, in God's character, and just who he is, that that alone is worth loving despite anything else that happens. Like his love for God does not swing on a pendulum. It is not rocking back and forth. Nothing is shaking it. 
there's a verse in Job that I mentioned in my book. And, and in summary, this isn't verbatim. It's Job is literally telling God, hey, I love you. I just don't like what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think as Christians, we don't know how to have that balance of being able to say, I'm going to love you through this, but I also don't like it. I think sometimes, at least the way I was brought up, you have to constantly want to do the right thing. And you want to just embrace the hard stuff and you just love trials and tribulations. And that's not the case, mm-hmm. nor is it what God requires of us. He, he asks for love, but I think in that space, because he loves us in messiness, he doesn't mind us saying, hey, I don't know what's going on. I'm dropping the ball, but I am sticking with you. Like that part of love where you're just faithful and you hang on, that is what I'm willing to step into. Yeah. You know, what's hilarious for me right now is before we got on the call, I mentioned I was coming from a community Bible study. And and when I say coming, I was rushing (laughs) because I was late. (laughs) And this is what we were talking about. Like what you just described, Job came up in the conversation. The verse of the day that's on my phone, and it's very irrelevant to what we're talking about, is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And the reason that it's relevant is because of how often we misuse that, how often we use that to say, therefore, everything's going to be fine. Right. And then we learn about our conditions when we realize how we respond when everything's not fine, when it seems like we don't have welfare, when it seems like there is evil, when it seems like the future is questionable at best, when it seems like there is no hope. And we spend some time talking about how really we're talking about an incomprehensible God. His ways are above our ways. (laughs) And when it says plans, somebody in the group asked, well, what plans are they talking about? Because when I read that as a kid, the plans were the plans for me in my life. Right. And our next step of spiritual growth is learning that life isn't just about me. And so sometimes maybe I'll go through something hard. But God is then going to utilize that for me to like comfort someone else with the comfort I received. But then the next spiritual step is to realize this may have nothing to do with me. I may be invited to endure something hard and I may never see the fruit of that. And this is where we really get to the level of at least closer to the level of love that God is inviting us to of how to love him is are we willing to love God if mm-hmm. bad things still happen? If the OCD diagnosis never goes away, if right. you have to remain on medication for the rest of your life? Because for some people, something's wrong. You must not be praying enough, or maybe God's not good. But what we're saying is no, actually, we're trying to learn how to operate in this tension of knowing that God is God and God is good, and also knowing that somehow hard things still happen. And yet I'm invited to take a step of faith. And that's what a step of faith is. It's not a step of confidence or a step of knowing. It's I am still choosing to step, even though my questions have not been answered and things have not gotten better and prospects are looking daunting. And yet I still step. Yeah, I I'm so glad you said that because so I I sought Christian counseling like that. That was my top, you know, outside of like, I do want a licensed professional. Like the next thing right under that was I would like someone who shares my beliefs because I know that's the core of who I am. And that will be a big part of my healing. And so I went to someone I trusted because we shared the same faith values and not two seconds into my very first session with her, which is that stereotype movie scene of just spilling your guts. It's weird. It's awkward. She looked at me and said, I just want you to know there's no cure for OCD. It's only been on the scene since about the eighties. So there's not in the terms of 
we know nothing about the brain anyway. Like even the best neurosurgeons, we don't know what's going on in the brain. And with only 30-ish, 40 years of experience with OCD, we have medicine that kind of just calms you down. It, it slows it down. But she said, you know, I just want you to know, I'm sorry. There, there's not, with schizophrenia and bipolar disorders, there is a pill that will just completely reverse you. And if you stay on that pill, you're, you're fixed, secured. And with OCD, even with a pill, it suppresses, but it doesn't fix. And so, you know, that was something I had to process of th this is it, like this is now part of who I am. And so over the next few months of just working through the diagnosis, working through figuring out medication, I, I kept thinking of Paul and, you know, Paul says that he has a thorn in the side and I know theologians have guessed it. I've heard everything. He was blind, this, that I've heard everything about what this thorn was, but I think we're, we're searching the wrong thing. I think people want to know what the thorn in the side was and they're missing what the purpose of the thorn in the side was. And I believe Paul never got rid of the thorn in the side. I don't think it was ever healed. And I think maybe we all have one and it's because I don't think it's to hurt us. I don't think it's to wound us. I don't think it's to slow us down, but I think there's this humbling process, this vulnerability that you can step into this community that can be created because I believe the thorn can be pruned and I believe it can grow into something better, something that's a visual for others to step back and look at and say something came from that beauty came from ash here. And I, and I want to know how I want to know why I want to know who was behind it. And so for me, I guess the way I see my OCD with God is if this is the one thing that keeps me cinched to you, that keeps me humble, that keeps me able to invite others in to say, Hey, here's where God's showing up and the worst parts of who I am, you know, then I can't complain. But then I'll stick with it. It'll be my thorn and we'll see what it grows and blooms into over the years. And that story is so powerful, too. It keeps coming up in these conversations, and rightfully so, because I think it presses against so many of our misunderstandings, but also presses into so many of the questions that we're asking. And, and one of the misunderstandings is what we've been describing. Somebody could have said to Paul, whatever that issue was, that should be able to get fully healed. Yeah. If God is good, if you really pray, then that thorn will just dis wither away and be gone. But what we know on this end of it is that's not what was supposed to happen. And I love that you pressed into, you know, there are so many reasons that that thorn has value. And the greatest one is how it led Paul to cleave all the more to God. Yeah. Because Paul was seeking God all his life. He was getting it wrong for the first part of it. But he was seeking God with the entirety of his being, his identity, everything. Then he has that moment. And suddenly he's seeking God anyway, but he is authentically seeking God. And yet in this dialogue with God, it is revealed to him that he is prone to wander, that even in his efforts to seek God, because what he was basically saying is, God, I need you to take this away so I can serve you better. Yeah. Like that was his whole desire to get it taken away was a God honoring desire. And even in honoring God, he was putting himself at risk of pulling away from God. And God's like, no, no, no. The thing you need to realize is it's not about becoming stronger and better Yeah. because in your yeah. weakness, you will recognize my strength. Yeah. If you are strong, you're going to recognize me less and less and less. And then God also projected it out and recognized that if Paul doesn't have this, he's going to become conceited because that was the first part of his life. Yeah. He was the yeah. best of the best. You know, somebody could look and say, well, 
if God was powerful and good, couldn't he have just found another way? But the thing is, is that, yes, God could have. He could have created us like robots and then gotten our programming just right so that we did everything exactly right. But his act of messy love was to release us and invite us to experience that love and to love him back. But he didn't force that love. And the same with Paul. He released Paul to live out this love and to live into that love. And in his graciousness, he allowed these things that in his wisdom, he knew like, okay, I could remove this thorn. But if I allow this thorn to stay, even though he's asked me three times, it's actually going to bring a better healing to him. And it's actually going to get him to where he really wants to be. And he's going to be able to see that on the back end, even if after the third prayer, he's a little annoyed. <laughs> right. And, and I think it was Paul who said, like, the things I want to do, I don't do. Like, like He's like, every time I try to do something, it doesn't work out. And the things I know I shouldn't be doing, that's what I end up doing. So Paul is totally honest with the fact that he's telling God, I'm dropping the ball over and over again. When you mentioned Jeremiah 29, 11, when it mentions plans for a future and plans for a hope, I, I think the hope is, is whatever we're able to step into where we see God's goodness, we see his grace on us, and then we can reflect it to other people. Yeah. Like, I don't think the hope in the future was getting rid of the thorn in the side. I think the hope was creating the space where other people could find hope too. Mm -hmm. Like it's such a communal thing yeah. and it only comes from vulnerability and vulnerability only comes most of the time with humans when we're in a space we can't navigate on our own because it's something out of our control. Yeah. Yeah. The funny thing about that passage, we use it on an individual level, but it was written to a body of people yeah, with exactly. generations in mind. And how much more could that be true for our lives as well? That the things that we want to be God's acts on an individual level, God's actually trying to do abundantly more. He's trying to do things extended into our families, extended into our extended families, extended into our friend networks and our connections, and even to the point of God working in the lives of people without us even realizing it. Because here's the thing, like we can say that, part of the fruit that's come out of your experience is this book, which people are going to read and that God can comfort them through, that God can work through. And that is a true statement. But the reality is, is it's so much bigger than that. The danger is, is that what we're really trying to do is always trying to find an answer and an explanation. So any bad thing that happens in my life, as long as I can find something to justify it, then I can love God, right? Because that's another condition. As long as God can explain why he allowed that to happen, then I can love it. But you talked about Job. Job didn't get that explanation, right? <laughs> he was like, God, give me all the answers. And God was like, well, the answer is I'm God. Exactly. It, exactly. Right? <laughs> so are we willing to step in faith towards messy love of God, even when we're not given the explanations, the answers, even when the things aren't fixed? And we have to continue walking with a thorn in our flesh that still, like whether it was figurative or literal, hurt Paul yeah. for the rest of his life. Are we willing to love God at that level? You know, when we talk about being Christians, Christ followers, this is where we really hit a wall. And it's fresh in my mind because I was just talking about this with a recent episode we see that passage where Jesus is confronted by multiple people that all want to follow him. 
but they all have reasons for not following them. And they're good reasons. I want to bury my father. <laughs> like I want to say <laughs> goodbye to my family, right? Legitimately good reasons. And what Jesus recognized is that we say we want to follow him, but only in so far as we can do this first or this doesn't happen. Right. And what Jesus is saying is the only way you can follow me is if you follow me now. You jump out the boat and you start walking, even right. if you're at risk of dying. And because God is God, God deserves all of that and more from us without us getting anything back. But because God is good, mm -hmm. he doesn't just leave us in those horrible situations. Like he doesn't just leave us in a space where we are utterly abandoned. Any hardship we face, God knows how to bring a redemption to it that's abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. But we, we don't really want to follow Christ sometimes. <laughs> like we no, want to follow I, a version of Christ. Yeah. And I think it's just like what the verses you mentioned, I don't think Christ when he was on earth was literally like, no, you can't, you know, I won't stand here for 10 minutes while you tell your mom bye. Like, I, I don't think that's what it was. Like you said, I think it's to the point of following me is going to require you to give up yourself mm -hmm. period. And, and I know it's easy to think of martyrdom, but I found myself praying here lately, like, God, I think sometimes it's easier to die for you than to live for you. Yeah. Like dying for you just takes one brave act, J just step up, one move. Living for you, showing up every day when it's hard, that's hard. Like there are days when I'm like, I'd just rather be a martyr. Someone just take me out for the faith, one brave step and I'm done. But living for him, like you said, that's to the death. You're, you're showing up day in and day out and saying, Hey, I'm not the priority today. And that's what a lot of people don't want to walk into. I'll be honest. I don't usually want to walk into it. Like, I don't love saying, Hey, I hope everything goes wrong and everything goes well for everyone else. But I think if we can swap the perspective, what I'm learning to do is step outside my perspective, almost like what you said with Jeremiah 29, 11, and instead just focus on the character of God and what he's trying to reveal about himself. This season might not get easier, but it makes sense. And so for me, I don't have to have an answer, but if I can understand the character of God, then I can get behind him and say, okay, I don't know what's going on, but I see who you are. I know how you operate. And because of that, I believe something good will come on this side or the next, you know, earth or heaven. And that's something that I'll get behind. Yeah. It's like us defining what our foundational core truths are that shape the rest of our lives because we're born with the foundational truth of self-preservation. Yep. I need to keep myself alive. I need to keep myself fed and I should have good things. And <laughs> when that is our foundational truth, then anything that happens is understood through that lens. So when you get a diagnosis or when something health-wise happens or when you lose a job, it presses up against that self-preservation and it seems unjust. It becomes something you have to fight against and our solutions become shaped around that, right? But if our foundational truth, like you just named, is that God is God and God is good, is worthy of everything and loves me. If we grow in believing that, then now when something happens, if we're trying to hold to that truth, even if we don't understand it, then it leads us to be content in all situations, to be able to say, okay, I don't know why this happened, God. I'm, I, I'm just remembering your words. Like you basically said to God after shaking your fist and yelling at him, I'm not going anywhere. Like it was that <laughs> moment you had every right to abandon God at that moment in your mind, at least, and no promise that anything would get better. And you were choosing to stay at the table. And that's because that core truth was there. 
and it changes everything. Now, here's the good news for all of us. We tend to have very binary approach to these things. Like you're either a good Christian or a bad Christian. You either get it right or you're getting it wrong. And that's just not how it works. There is this graciousness and understanding that God has for us because you mentioned this whole, we would be willing to be martyrs. We would be willing to die for God, but it's hard to live for God. And nobody captured that better than Peter, who said to Jesus, I am willing to go to jail for you. I am willing to die for you. And I believe he 100% was. And the reason I believe that is because in the garden, a group of guards, armed guards come. And what does he do? He pulls out his sword and he attacks them and he cuts off an ear. If you are a few guys in a garden with two swords against armed guards and you pull out your sword, it's like in the movie where the person knows that they're not making it out. But they're like, you guys go on ahead. I've got this. It's this heroic moment where they know they are going to die and they are choosing death. That was Peter in that moment. He was choosing death. He was willing to die for Jesus. And then Jesus is like, put your sword away. And Peter's like, I don't understand what's going on right now. This is weird. And then it gets worse for Peter because he watches Jesus get beat, humiliated. And then the real opportunity to die for Jesus came. Yeah. And it first took the form of death to reputation. And that was too much. Because when somebody said, aren't you one of the guys who walked with them? He said, no, right? Like he was willing to die for Jesus, but that would have been a quick, swift death. Whereas this, he would have been treated the same way as Jesus was. He would have been dragged immediately over to Jesus, right. beat and whipped and suffered humiliation. And Peter couldn't do it. But the good news is, the good news is, is that Jesus loved him deeply, even in that. And yeah. Jesus accepted him back. And the same is true for us when we feel like we have failed God because we didn't have enough faith. We didn't seek him hard enough. God is like the father in the prodigal son story. He's like, but just keep running down the road. I understand. I understand. And we don't have to be perfect Christians. We just need to be willing to come as we are and take whatever next best step we can, even if it's just a little shifting of the toe. Right. And, and I think with Peter, you know, denying Christ, it was so interesting because like one time it was like a little girl. Like yeah. this is a Roman soldier. It's like a, a child. And he's like, no, I don't. And I think what we come up against, and it depends on which side of the fence you tend to lean on based on your experiences. When we come up against a hard season or our faith is challenged in that moment, when we fail, it's usually either pride or shame. It's one of the two. We either have the pride and want to save face or it's shame where we don't believe we even deserve goodness. So we're not going to step into the truth because we don't feel worthy of it. At least in my life, that's what I've noticed is, is when I just mess up big time and I low-key know it and I step into it, it always comes back to pride where I'm trying to save the reputation or shame where I don't believe I even deserve the reputation to begin with. And I think, you know, God is love. God is judge. Like, I believe there's a beautiful combination that only he understands. So not counting out that sin is sin, but I think he gets it. Like that was the neat thing is he comes back to Peter three days later. He's like, Hey, feed my sheep. Like you, you messed up really bad. I even kind of hinted that you were going to mess up and you still messed up, but now you're the rock of the church. Like that's what I love. There's that in between, like you said, it's messy. You totally messed up while he's being beaten and murdered. And the next thing he says to you is simply, Hey, do you love me? Okay. Yeah. Now go feed my sheep. And in fact, you're now the rock of the church, like the foundation of my truth 
lasting for millenniums to come until the end of the world, I've picked you. I, I don't know. That's just a part of God I'll never understand. I don't think I'll ever be able to imitate, honestly, to that pure of a level. But that's a good God that you can get behind, even when the season doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I love where this conversation is going. And I feel like we could keep on going and going and going. But one thing I want to make sure I leave space for is we've talked about this idea of the stigma of mental health in the church. Yeah, We've said a few things, but is there anything that you want to like, directly like say regarding that topic of the stigma of mental health in the church? Oh, yeah. Number one, <laughs> I would really call, not call out church leaders in an aggressive way, but call them into a space that even if they don't struggle with mental health, if that's just not their thorn in the side, I encourage them to get honest and real with the community and challenge themselves to, to pray hard and see if there's a way that you can still lead on that front. I think we like to believe ignorance just counts us out, but God uses ignorant humans. And like we are all ignorant creatures. Like if ignorance counted us out, then we would just all be out of luck. So I just, I challenge church leaders, pastors, small group leaders, Bible study leaders. If you feel like you don't understand it, just know that God invites you into that space and that there is beauty and the vulnerability of you saying, Hey, I don't understand it, but I want to, and I believe we need to as believers. And for people on the other side who do have, you know, the mental health struggles, what I have to remind myself of when, when on the days I forget my medicine or or things I'm just triggered, God is still better than I could ever create him to be in my head. And if he's better than I could ever imagine, and I'm literally made in his image, then there's a really good chance that I am better Mm. than I imagined. I'm not perfect. I am completely flawed, but the core of who I am and the way the father of everything sees me is better than I see myself. Mm. And so that's just something I remind myself of a, a small truth that tends to help a lot on the hard days. That's really good. Well, I have two final questions. I'll ask them back to back. Okay. The first is if anybody wants to engage with your book, with your content, how do they access that? And then the second is, is there anything else in your heart or mind that you want to share before we go? Ooh, what I love to share, what's always on my heart and mind at, at the end is if you'll go to my website, it's just PeytonGarland.me. Super easy to find me. I have a tab that's like contact. It's my contact tab. And it's, you know, if I do speaking engagements or anything, it comes off super businessy, but I also tell people, if you've heard me on a podcast, if you've read my book, I love hopping on zoom chats and just talking to people about their experience, what they thought of the book. If they just feel like they need to talk, I'm not a therapist. I'm not God, but I'm honest. And I I can promise you honest conversation. And so I always tell people, just don't be afraid to reach out. And if you do want to check out my book, Amazon is the quickest place to go. Just not so by myself on Amazon. But PeytonGarland.me does have a tab to purchase my book as well. I think we had a great conversation. I feel like I have some, even as a Christian school kid, it's always neat when there's a fresh perspective I've never heard. I really enjoy this time and I enjoy your vulnerability. I enjoy, I appreciate your vulnerability (laughs) because yeah, it's, it's one thing to acknowledge that there's a stigma. It's another thing to actually put yourself in the middle of that space knowing that to write a book and put it out publicly and talk about this is could invite uh, negative responses. And so I want to thank you for your willingness to do that. You will walk, you will run, dance through the streets, shouting praise to the one. You're healed, you're clean. Go out, tell the people what you've seen. Revive.
have a story like Peyton's where you have wrestled with challenges regarding mental health and it has not been received well by those around you or the church or just internally, I hope that you're encouraged. I hope that you know that you're not alone. This conversation brought up a lot that the church needs to press into and process if we want to be able to love as God loves. And one thing I loved that Peyton shared is this concept of messy love. We want love to be clear and clean cut, but sometimes it's messy. In fact, a verse that shows better than most how messy God's love is, is one of the most famous verses in scripture, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's love was so deep and powerful that it allowed the messiness of the death of his only son. That is messy. We love to quote that verse, but we often don't take it within the full context of where it lands. And that context is really important in general, but especially important in our conversation about mental health and healing. The conversation takes place between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus had some hard questions for Jesus, and he was authentically trying to understand. But the problem was, Nicodemus knew Scripture, and what Jesus was saying did not mesh well with what Nicodemus understood. I want to pick up in verse 9. Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So here's the deal. Nicodemus desired to know God. Nicodemus spent his life studying the scriptures. But when confronted with the actual reality and truth of God, he wrestled because it did not mesh with his understanding. And as a result, it was impossible for Nicodemus to really fully see Jesus and to really fully follow him. And the same is true for us. We have our own understandings of how things work, of who God is, of what he is supposed to do. And as long as we hold on to those understandings, it's impossible to fully know Jesus and to fully follow him. And we have a lot of understandings around healing a lot of beliefs around mental health, a lot of ideas around what is okay and what is not. And as long as we're holding on to our own things, we're not going to have open hands to hold on to what Jesus is trying to give us. One of my favorite verses, and I've shared it on the podcast before, is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will set your path straight. What we're talking about here is a relinquishing of our understanding, 
of our will as an act of submission to God. And that is risky and scary because it's going to cost us a lot. So we got to ask ourselves, what is it that we are actually after? Are we actually after living out what it means to love God and love others? Or is that a good idea that we would love to follow, but not at the expense of the things we don't want to give up? Listen, this is to the church. Church, there are a lot of people hurting right now because of the stigmas we've placed around mental health. And our own understanding is causing us to not actually love as Jesus loved and as Jesus continues to love. There are a lot of people actively being neglected, insulted, hurt, misrepresented within the walls of our church. And eventually, many people have left the walls of the church because of this. While too many of us feel like the healing that needs to happen around mental health is that there are no longer mental health issues, the real healing may need to be within the church itself, within how we understand and engage with others. Because as Peyton shared, what she is navigating is a lifelong thing. And if we continue to be in the mindset that the real answer is that she no longer has to deal with that, we miss the reality that right now, here and now, we can engage in messy love. Instead of trying to fix things, we can love even while things are still messy. God loves us even when things are still messy. While we were still sinners, God loved us and gave his son. We will hold off loving until it is neat and packaged well. And God says, love first. <laughs> love first and then deal with whatever mess results. Because the truth is, is sometimes we find out that the mess we're trying to avoid is not actually mess at all. Sometimes the thing that we're so afraid of actually has power only because we give it power. We have an opportunity to love today. Messy love that's not for our benefit, but as an act of living out the call to love God and love others. And I want to encourage you to pray a simple prayer of asking God, God, are there any ways that my understanding has caused me to not love others? because of assumptions I've created about them or expectations that I have. I wanna encourage you to pray that because it could change how you interact with others today. It may increase your capacity to love your neighbor. So take a little step towards messy love and then ask yourself, where did you see God? Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash Where Did You See God, or you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, uh, think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of the music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God?